This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode 53, uh, and this week we are looking at philanthropy and structure. Um, So I'm looking forward to this one because the question of structure um, within philanthropy and just kind of more broadly something that really interests me um, as a personal bit of backstory it has done ever since um, I was at university and I spent uh, an inordinate and unfortunate amount of time doing things like uh, set theory and group theory so I've always been kind of fascinated by how you use sets of rules to kind of define structures um, and that's something that I sort of continue to be interested in today. Um, So what I want to do is take a bit of a look at the kind of history of how philanthropy uh, and charity has become structured, um, ask some questions about kind of why it it perhaps is that it's become structured and what function uh, that structuring serves, then go on and take a look at some sort of specific modern structures that have emerged uh, to enable people to do philanthropy or charitable giving, um, and then as ever kind of have a bit of a think about what the, the future might hold. Okay, so in the the first section, uh, what I want to do is kind of um, just try and take a bit of a broad historical look at the way in which philanthropy has become sort of structured over time. So I guess the starting point is to say that sort of prior to the emergence of modern philanthropy, which I generally take to have happened around about the time of the the Reformation, which we've discussed many, many times before on uh, on the podcast, the there were structures for philanthropy, particularly um, in the UK, charitable trusts or trusts for charitable purposes had um, existed for many hundreds of years at that point. And we'll discuss those uh, a bit more in the second uh, segment of the podcast where we look at endowed structures. But other than that, most philanthropy or charitable giving was essentially fairly informal, unstructured alms giving, which took place within the confines of of the local parish uh, and as such the kind of hosting institution was the church particularly the catholic church at that point Um, so as a result one of the things that the reformation meant as well as kind of paving the way for a secular version of philanthropy was that it kind of dismantled quite a lot of that um, existing structure of catholic charity so it had a pretty negative effect in the short term uh, on kind of addressing social issues and just a quick Quote here from a paper by uh, Ian Archer, um, where he says, uh, we've underestimated the damage done by the dissolutions, that's of the monasteries, both because the scale of the alms distributed through monasteries and fraternities has been underestimated, and because the fraternities provided an institutional framework within which um, uh, informal support could be offered. So um, I think it's quite um, sort of interesting point there that what happened um, as the, the monasteries were dissolved and they lost that sort of existing infrastructure of uh, the church and the parish that, that um, kind of provided for almsgiving, that was dismantled and lost. Um, 
And then there was a question about what would come in and replace it. And actually, that's the point at which you, you see secularization, but also um, as kind of religion became dissociated from, from charity, you got more uh, other things uh, and kind of more new structures imposed on top of it. Again, just a quote from a book by uh, Ben Amos about the culture of giving saying, a wholesale transformation in the conception of good works occurred as religion was dissociated from charity and a shift from religious to public charity marked by the secularization, institutionalization and bureaucratization of charitable giving came to pass. Um, so we've kind of got the, the Reformation there leading to the um, the kind of dissolution of one set of, uh, of kind of structures for giving, the old Catholic ones, and the start of uh, a whole new set of structures that, that were set up with kind of Protestant ideals. Um, and then that sort of um, means that there are some changes already, but then the next big change that happens is less to do with religion and more to do with social change, and particularly around the industrial revolution and the impact of urbanisation. So as uh, as the population kind of shifted uh, very much towards um, urban areas away from rural areas, one of the things this meant was there was a kind of significant change in the nature and scale of, of poverty. So poverty became much more pressing and apparent um, in those urban areas as people were kind of crowded together in slums and there were all sorts of health and social issues. But also the nature of that poverty changed because um, there was a sort of uh, there were large periods of unemployment um, and kind of there wasn't so much seasonal work and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so the the challenge as um, as the kind of models for giving moved from the rural parishes into the city was that they weren't really up to the job anymore. And actually, it became almost impossible for an individual donor who back in you know the sort of uh, pre-industrial revolution times would have been able to do their giving on a sort of person-to-person basis and make individual determinations about who to give to and who was a deserving case and all that sort of thing. If they, they couldn't really do that in, in the, um, the urban context because there were just too many people, they'd be absolutely swamped by people looking for, for assistance. Um, and, and this kind of caused a, a big problem for a lot of donors. Um, and this needs uh, both to kind of be able to assess cases, to find the, the most needy cases and to be able to distribute the money effectively, led people to look for ways in which they could pool their resources. So at first this happened fairly informally and you got what, what often happened was you'd get kind of people who were themselves seen to be quite effective philanthropists would be approached by other philanthropists or potential philanthropists and kind of asked for help and advice um, or even kind of assistance in distributing money. So um, there was a, a man called Thomas Furman who was a London merchant um, and known to be a sort of very thoughtful and effective uh, charitable giver. And over time, he got approached by more and more uh, other sort of peers who were interested in giving to charity for advice and help with distributing it. And in, in the end, in uh, his biography, it said that he became known as the almoner general for the poor because so many other sort of wealthy people looked to him to help them with their philanthropy. Um, but even that sort of level of kind of informal pooling and association um, wouldn't really do you know, the job at the scale that was required. So this is where you see the development of the idea of associational philanthropy. So this is where you would get groups of donors um, coming together uh, and creating a sort of 
structure, a pooled structure that allowed them to put their money together and pool resources both for distributing it but also for assessing cases and kind of uh, granting the money out and then often there would be a sort of staff of people involved with that who were experts either in the sort of assessment of grants or distribution of money Um, and it's interesting historically that it's often noted this happened um, at the same time as the development of the joint stock corporation so a similar thing was happening just around the private sector where you know traditionally you'd had the model of this kind of individual merchant um, you know doing business as a as a kind of individual person but at that point you had more people kind of coming together and pooling resources to to invest in various things or to kind of set up companies uh, and the idea of kind of joint stock where you would have shares in a company came about and people uh, sort of naturally who were involved in commerce took these ideas over into the realm of the, the charitable as well so um, it's just one quote here saying the model of association was that of the joint stock company it was to appear again and again for items of social capital, which varied from public baths to botanical and zoological gardens. Um, and you know this became a sort of very popular way of doing things and is essentially the kind of genesis for the idea of a charitable organisation that we have today. Um, it's worth noting that the, the idea of um, kind of associating and creating a structure for giving um, immediately raises a question where even if you've decided you want to do that, there's a big question about whether or not you make that structure itself kind of highly rigid and hierarchical and centralised or whether you try and keep it uh, decentralised or kind of flat and democratic. Um, and this has been a, kind of quite a big point in the history of philanthropy in a number of different places. So here in the UK, um, from the 19th century, you see a sort of divergence or emergence of two quite separate um, traditions. So on the one hand, you have the kind of charitable philanthropic tradition, which embodies quite a lot of the elements of sort of hierarchical structure, often because it's kind of to do with existing power dynamics between uh, wealthy people and not so wealthy people. But then on the other hand, you have the the kind of uh, mutualism and cooperative uh, tradition embodied by things like friendly societies and building societies, which is more about people in the middle classes and the working classes particularly choosing to associate on a kind of equal footing with each other and sharing resources. And obviously this gets tied up with a lot of um, early thinking around kind of socialist principles. Um, And then in the US, the the kind of question about how you associate has been um, a very important part of um, the history of, of philanthropy for a long time. So I think we've mentioned before on the podcast, actually, this this quote, but I'm going to do it again, which is a concern about the very sort of notion of uh, people being able to associate and create structures in this way, because there was always a concern given the origin story of the US, where it was largely about kind of escaping from the yoke of British control, that if you then allowed people to sort of set up alternative power bases outside of the the constitution and democratically elected government, that was going to be problematic. So um, George Washington, in his farewell speech as US president, um, said, combinations and associations under whatever plausible character with the real design to direct, control, counteract, or awe the regular deliberation and action of the constituted authorities, serve to organise faction, to give it an artificial and extraordinary force, to put it in the place of the delegated will of a nation, the will of a party, 
often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community. And Washington said uh, over time that these sort of philanthropic or voluntary associations would become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious and unprincipled men will be able to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust domination. Um, which I just love as a quote, because actually in a day and age where we're talking again about the dangers of kind of centralisation of philanthropic power in the hands of a small number of people, it's really interesting to see, see that George Washington noted this all that time ago. Um, but apart from the concerns about the sort of the, the very idea of creating structures which allow some of that that power to be pooled and, and centralised, um, there are also quite a lot of debates about the way in which those organisations um, were structured. So uh, here, there's a really great paper um, by Peter Dobkin Hall, who's one of the sort of most eminent um, historians of philanthropy in, in the US. And he, in a paper called Resolving the Dilemmas of Democratic Governance, um, which I'll put some links into the show notes, notes the um, sort of controversy between two competing points of view about uh, about association. And particularly on, on one side, there were people who thought that you should have more delegated power to trustees and kind of put more power in these new forms of voluntary association. But then on the other side, people, men like uh, Wayland, um, said that voluntary associations were fine in themselves, but you had to very carefully limit their power to only the specific things that people had chosen to associate um, around. So it says in here, voluntary associations, Wayland wrote, must abide by the precise terms of their contract with their members. So they have no power to do anything in a manner different from that which was specified in the original compact. The moment any departure is made from the original agreement, the association is in fact dissolved. The individual members agree to unite for one specific purpose. If the purpose be changed, another association is formed with which the previous members have nothing to do unless they form a new and different compact. So I guess his point there he's making is that it's all very well creating these structures, but if you are not careful, once you've created a structure, the the danger is that um, if you empower a small number of people with sort of executive power as a result of that, and you don't put checks and balances on it, then they are free to kind of take that power and, and do with it whatever they want. Um, and that should be a kind of cause for concern in a democracy. Um, and then the, the final thing before I kind of come on, come on to ask some questions about why you might need structure that's worth noting is in quite a lot of cases, we talk here about, you know, the way in which um, we've structure has been imposed on philanthropy because the kind of individual transactions of person-to-person -person giving for whatever reason were not feasible anymore. Um, but then there is a question about how you structure the organisations themselves, whether they're centralised or not centralised. There's also a question about, at a sort of market or systems level, how you structure the, the landscape of, of uh, philanthropy. And this is where a question of kind of regulation um, and central oversight comes. Um, and I won't go into it in any detail because it's a story I think we've told on the podcast uh, a number of times before, but... You know, there's long been concerns from within uh, the philanthropy world about sort of making it more rational and avoiding sort of duplication and making for better coordination. So you have things like the charity organisation, society movement, sort of scientific philanthropy um, in the US. But also you have the, the story about the kind of proliferation of redundant parochial trusts in London in the mid 19th century, which led to 
kind of centralization of regulatory power in the UK Charity Commission. So, so I think there's that additional level at which you have oversight, particularly as kind of government came to feel that it had more of a stake in uh, in civil society. Um, okay, so I just want to ask now, sort of off the back of that that whistle stop tour of uh, some of how um, philanthropy became structured. Question about why it is that you need structure. You know, why is it that we can't just go around doing things in an entirely kind of unstructured way, and, and that's fine. Well, I guess there's a few things, some practical, some more theoretical, some positive, some perhaps not so positive. So, you know, an obvious one is just to coordinate decision making. So, uh, as I've said, that might be between individuals. That's why people came together to form voluntary associations. Or it might be between organisations, which is where you get that sort of second level of organisation, like the charity organisation society or governments trying to, to kind of introduce regulatory mechanisms to try and you know, make the the market more more efficient. Um, the other one is another one is uh, pooling of resources. Again, we've mentioned you know there's a sort of sense that people come together because they feel that um, they can uh, more effectively achieve what they want to achieve with their money if they kind of join forces with like-minded people because then there are economies of scale so that you can have some sort of infrastructure around it. And if everybody is off doing their own little thing. Um, chances are that you're kind of duplicating a lot of that cost and, and therefore that's sort of eating away into into what uh, you could be spending that money on. Um, and then there are other things like, uh, you know, the ability to sort of set and maintain a longer term strategy. Again, if you have a kind of, you know, loose uh, association of people with, with no centralised structure, it's quite difficult to get agreement about, you know, beyond any one sort of immediate point, what the sort of long-term purpose is and to set strategy rather than tactics. So actually by having a kind of organisational structure and putting in place governance mechanisms, things like trustees and executive management, uh, it, it gives you the sort of uh, framework around which to, to build that. Um, I think there are some other interesting ones. So, one is that by creating a structure, um, particularly when it comes to trying to sort of drive social change, um, what you do is you enable the sort of separation of a person's uh, identity as themselves from the role that they play in in the organisation or the structure. And what I mean by this is the sort of you know the difference between uh, me as Rodri Davis and the difference between me as head of policy for. The calf at this point in time, which is a position that another person could fill. Whereas, if if it is always just me as an individual, I'm bringing to the table this whole host of um, of other sorts of attributes uh, as well. Um, and that has some benefits in terms of you know things like getting away from the the kind of cult of personality that might come with charismatic founders if you have a kind of separate organisational structure. Um, it also potentially makes voluntary association more effective as a means for kind of navigating conflict because if you can dissociate yourself as an individual from the role that you're playing in an organization and kind of have arguments or attempt to drive change uh, through that association it depersonalizes it to, to some extent so it kind of makes it easier for everybody to remain civil um Another benefit to using structures is um, certainly an argument we'll come on to later as well. It makes things fairer for everybody because you have explicit rules. Um, the thing is, uh, you know, we'll talk about this um, a bit in the, the final section. 
Um, if you don't have structure, that doesn't mean there aren't any rules or there aren't any kind of power dynamics. It just tends to mean that they're tacit or hidden. Um, and, you know, that kind of disadvantages certain groups who don't have power or don't have kind of existing connections. Whereas actually, if you make all of those rules explicit, so, you know, you have a charity, for instance, and you have kind of rules and articles of association and you have a kind of stated charitable mission and you have kind of policies and procedures and that kind of thing. The point of that is to make it fair because it's sort of everybody it's transparent and everybody knows what the rules are and why they're being applied. Um, and then I guess the other sort of basket of uh, reasons for why people might use structure, I guess, guess is sort of more critical, which is often they are about exerting or sort of building power and control. Um, and that might be as a way for sort of existing elites or those who have a bit of power um, to exert more power. So um, there's a great article by um, R.J. Morris uh, in the Cambridge Social History of Britain, uh, Volume 3, uh, called Club Societies and Association, which looks at all of, all of the sort of formations of these different types of um structures but he notes there um saying that as society became more complex those with power those with no power and above all those with slender fragments of power which they sought to defend and extend began to organize themselves in a variety of specific ways a whole new series of words came into common use in the english language often changing or adding to their meaning the association the society the chairman the agenda the membership the rules and constitution and the annual report um, and so the point here is that, you know, the middle classes, particularly at the, that time, were using sort of voluntary association as a means of kind of entrenching their own power uh, and also, um, interestingly, trying to sort of exert that power on the working classes. So there were quite a lot of instances where voluntary association in the local area was was kind of largely populated by the existing great and the good. And they used this as a way of kind of gentrifying those who they saw as their social inferiors the interesting thing is that this this was the theory but it didn't always play out so there's another um there's a great story uh here from a different paper by rj morris where he says um so in 1836 when the leeds temperance society split over the introduction of an exclusive teetotal pledge such a pledge was resisted by the high status committee members who had founded and sponsored the society despite pleas from the platform that the speakers on one side should properly consider what is due to the respectability and station in life of their opponents, men who have been originators and supporters of many of the most charitable and benevolent institutions. The general meeting voted for the teetotal pledge, and the committee left the society clearly disturbed by the rejection of their social authority. So they had set up this temperance society and brought on board the, the working classes and basically tried to sort of impose on them a view about moderation. Uh, the working class uh, members, uh, on the other hand, wanted uh, kind of total abstinence, um, and the, the middle class members thought they could sort of force their views through as a as a result of their existing uh, status in society. But the working classes decided to sort of thumb their nose at them uh, in that instance. Um, so it's kind of interesting to to see, you know, the early signs of voluntary association um, leading to sort of power structures being destabilized as well. Um, okay, even by my standards, that struck, that uh, section has run long. So I'm going to wrap that up uh, there. And then in the next section, I'm going to come on and talk about um, sort of structures for philanthropy and giving. So stay tuned for that. 
Okay, so we're back for the next section, and as ever, I will try and get through this um, perhaps a little bit quicker than I did the first section, but let's see. So the first thing to say, I sort of mentioned it in the first section, is one set of structures for philanthropy are endowed structures. So these are kind of legal structures that allow people to place money into a vehicle, sort of in trust, and that is treated by law as a kind of recognised entity, often with particular benefits associated with it in terms of, sort of taxation. Um, and it might have rules about having kind of defined purpose or sort of list of acceptable purposes to which money can be can be given out of that. Um, and the, the kind of history of uh, foundations or kind of endowed structures is interesting because it differs quite a lot in different countries. So um, there's a very long history of charitable trusts in the UK, which long predates modern philanthropy. Uh, and for a long time, you know, that was kind of one of the major vehicles for philanthropy. And a lot of it was more to do with um, uh, gifts given after death um, rather than sort of ch trusts set up during life, which is you know a, a relatively modern phenomenon. Um, but the interesting thing is there's actually no such thing as a foundation in law in, in the UK. There are trust structures uh, and there are trust structures that are also registered charities but um, no such thing as a foundation even though they quite often get referred to um, and I guess there's also you know there's a difference between uh, endowed structures that focus on grant making to other organizations and those that are endowed and also kind of have operational focus so there's a distinction there that you often see kind of replicated elsewhere um, but there are other uh, cultures in which um, there are very long-standing sort of histories of foundation or kind of endowed structures. So one interesting one is uh, in the Islamic world, there's a structure called the Waqf, which I will give apologies if I'm not uh, pronouncing that properly. But this is very interesting because it's been around since the, I think, sort of 5th or 6th century. And this, again, I don't think they're limited to charity, but a lot of them end up having kind of altruistic motives. But it was a structure that allowed an individual to set aside some money and kind of place it within a recognised legal vehicle and use that as a way of distributing money to, um, you know, potentially good causes or you know for for other purposes. Um, and the interesting thing is uh, about you know both of these the the fact it's very long standing in the UK and you have separate traditions like the the WAC. Um, that's you know the the place in which we look. Um, certainly when talking about foundations, is the US. Uh, and that's understandable. You know, many of the biggest foundations in the world are there um, and probably, you know, the highest proliferation of them and they some of them have enormous power. But actually, the idea of foundation in the US is relatively modern. So it's an early 20th century invention. So it was a specific legal structure created at that point um, and it proved very controversial. I mean, it nearly didn't happen. So there's an you know, extremely sort of well-known story from the history of philanthropy in the US where um, J.D. Rockefeller was seeking to set up a vehicle for his philanthropy, which, you know, he was already giving quite a lot by that point. And he wanted to get a charter for his foundation or for, the, for a new vehicle he wanted to call foundation so he would be recognised, sort of have government stamp of approval. Um, and there was some real sort of resistance and concerns to this, um, concerns about this, because people worried, you know, about the scale of it and, and the impact that it would have on democracy and you know, all these sorts of things that we find ourselves talking about uh, quite a lot again these days. 
Um, and it also there was um, there was a commission on industrial relations called the Walsh Commission, which sort of looked into into these issues and was very uh, critical. It was a few years later, but um, it, the, around the specific sort of chartering of the foundation, the eventually this was in 1909 that they started the process. I think 1913, the House of Representatives uh, passed a bill to charter the foundation, but then that couldn't get through the Senate because they refused to pass it. So. Rockefeller and his legal team decided instead to move and seek a charter from the New York state legislation, which did get passed. Um, and it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, it was it was very close to not really being allowed at all in the first place. And then the kind of whole history of US foundations would have been dead in the water from the outset. So it's one of those instances where kind of history uh, turns on a dime, as, as they say. Um, but then apart from sort of endowed structures, um, the uh, other kinds of structures are sort of operating structures for um, for charity or civil society. Um, you know the sorts of things that a endowed grant making foundation might give to in order to do the work if it's not operational itself. So here in the UK, we have obviously nowadays registered charities. So um, essentially, you know that's a way of having a legal structure where you have. Um, a kind of specified um, set of charitable purposes and articles of association and you can kind of draw boundaries around the organizations that meet those requirements and those that don't um, there's a public benefit test so that it's sort of assessed whether or not the um, the organization delivers a benefit um, at all like a social benefit as sort of prescribed in law and whether that benefit is public so it can't be private it can't be sort of um, limited to a to a closed group of people um but um and then you look at the the us and this is an it's sort of well, to my mind quite an interesting difference which is there there aren't really charity structures in the same way the structures in the us are tax designations essentially so there's a couple of different ones the one that's closest equivalent to uk registered charity is the 501c3 but that actually encompasses lots of other things as well um, and that brings with it a certain number of sort of tax advantages, and you're allowed to give tax effectively to to those uh, 501c3 organisations. But there are also other designations that don't really have any equivalent in the UK. Certainly, like the 501c4, which um, is organisations that have some tax exempt status but are able to engage in political activity and campaigning. Um, so this is where things like super PACs uh, fall, and where you know quite a lot of the concerns about the the impact of sort of dark money uh, on uh, U.S. politics comes, um, and then there are there are other sort of hybrid vehicles that that have emerged over time. So some of these are quite interesting. So there's things like donor advised funds. Now, essentially, a donor advised fund is a bit like a mini foundation, but what happens is you, an individual or a couple or a family, will set up a kind of named fund within a, a larger charitable structure so um, they a little bit of that will kind of be carved out under the umbrella of the larger structure and therefore they kind of re- removes the need to set up a, a standalone organization so you don't have the kind of setup and management costs of it um, and that's obviously appealing for lots of donors with sort of slightly smaller amounts to give but also for many larger donors who kind of want to avoid the cost and hassle of that um, and you know, these we've seen these in sort of various ways so the, the history of it in the UK was that when the charitable deed of covenant was introduced in the 20s, in 1922, which allowed people for the first time to kind of officially get a personal tax relief for giving to charity, 
Um, at that, when it first started, it had to be to a specific name charity and some sort of canny entrepreneur in the charity sector um, at the Liverpool Council for uh, Voluntary Service, I think, um, thought, hang on a minute, if we are ourselves a kind of general purpose charity, what if we set up a structure where people can set up a covenant to us, give us the money, then we'll sort of hold on to it and say, you just tell us when you want to give to an organisation and we'll make a grant on your behalf. Um, and uh, quite quickly, CAF's very early um, predecessor, which was the Charities Fund in the National Council for Social Service, did a similar thing at a kind of uh, national level. Uh, and CAF sort of continues to do that to, to this day. Um, separately in the US, um, it emerged more out of the Community Foundation movement, so the, the Cleveland Fund, um, which was the, the first uh, community foundation, um, they did a, a similar thing of allowing donors, uh, kind of local donors in Cleveland, to to, to set up these structures within uh, the kind of larger pool of money and, and direct money out of it. Um, now, it's, we're saying that's become much more sort of commercialised in the US over time. Partly, um, there were some tax changes in the 50s designed to clamp down on perceived abuses of the, the kind of foundation structure and these introduced new rules around the taxation of donations to private foundations which made made it less um, kind of beneficial to give to those but uh, donor advice funds weren't caught by that so actually it became more appealing to use that structure um, and then I think from around the 90s 80s 90s um, commercial providers came in so particularly big providers like uh, Fidelity Charitable who were a very, very large donor advice fund provider. Um, and it's worth sort of noting briefly, this has become uh, an area of some controversy in recent years in the US where people have become increasingly concerned that um, money is sort of going into these uh, these donor advice fund structures run by large commercial enterprises, but not necessarily coming out again at the same rate. Um, so Essentially, donors are kind of getting a lot of the the tax benefit that was designed for gifts to charity, but there isn't actually enough of an impetus getting that money out to where it's needed. Um, and this is likely to be brought to the, the fore again in, in coming years because there's currently a big case uh, called Fairburn versus Fidelity where some donors are taking Fidelity Charitable to, to court um, more to do with the management of the the investments in their donor advice fund, but it's likely to kind of raise all these questions about donor control versus um, control by the the organisation hosting the DAF and that kind of thing. Um, and then finally, there's there are some sort of structures that exist uh, in the US that don't really have an equivalent in the UK and uh, are kind of some people think would be interesting in terms of uh, broadening out the options over here and potentially helping to drive um, more of a culture uh, of philanthropy. There's particularly things like charitable remainder trusts and charitable lead trusts. Now, I don't particularly want to get bogged down in a lot of detail uh, about what these are, but essentially they are vehicles that allow somebody to give money or assets to charity, uh, usually for a defined period of time, I think up, usually up to about 20 years or when you die, whichever one comes as sooner, um, but you can retain a financial interest. So something like my house, for instance, or a large lump sum of money, if I got to a point in my life where I thought, well, I could probably do, you know, I could probably give that away, or I don't need it at the moment, but I'm not sure I want to give it away outright because I'm not sure what my circumstances will be in the future. 
in the US, there are options where you can give that money or put that asset into one of these structures. You then get paid a kind of income as if it was from a you know a savings account or an ISA or something. The the money um, in in the trust then with the charitable remainder trust, what happens is at the end of the term, whatever's remaining after that money's been paid to you goes to the nominated charity. With the charitable lead trust, it's basically the the mirror image. So the organisation gets paid the the sort of annual money from it, and you then get the asset back at the end. And the idea here is it just kind of opens up a new market for people who might have quite significant uh, assets, particularly sort of baby boomers who might have illiquid assets like property and would like to do something with it, but aren't willing necessarily to uh, sell up or give it away, particularly if they're still living in it and it's a house. Um, And, you know, there have been kind of suggestions over the last 10 or 15 years about the possibility of introducing these things in the UK. Uh, up to now, those haven't got that far. I think there's there's been some exploration from Treasury, but it's you know it's difficult to uh, to drive through um, kind of new uh, entirely new tax breaks for for philanthropy without a very strong evidence base. But there are sort of still people working on that and trying to to make the case for it. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes in coming years. Okay. Um, well, that brings that section to a close. Uh, and then in the final section, we're just going to go on and have a little bit of a think about what the future might hold in terms of uh, kind of philanthropy and structure. So stay tuned for that. OK, so we're back for the final section. And as ever, I'm running far too long, so I'll attempt to keep it brief. But by this point, if you've listened to the podcast before, you might just not believe me when I say that. Um, so what I want to do here is just have a, a bit of a think about, well, two things firstly, about what other structures there might be for philanthropy in the future and sort of broader question about whether we're going to move away from the idea of requiring structure at all or sort of um, have a much looser conception of structure. So in terms of the first, what I'm thinking is um, less about sort of specific new structures for philanthropy and more about existing structures that are being adapted or repurposed uh, for philanthropic purposes. So this is this is basically the point that increasingly I think the marketplace for people doing good or giving money is broadening out. So you know on the one hand we have um, increasing number of uh, kind of hybrid structures and social enterprise structures that allow people to kind of combine um, profit motives with social purpose motives. And there are structures emerging around that, things like the sort of B Corporation movement, which is um, essentially a corporate structure, but with a a locked-in social purpose. It's very interesting. Um, And there are more, you know, sort of straightforward for-profit companies that are professing a social purpose. And it may well be that people, you know, decide um, that that's the, you know, the best way to to kind of use their philanthropic money to, to achieve good in the world. But even within the world of sort of more seemingly traditional philanthropy, there are some interesting developments. So one that's been noticed is the increasing use of um, limited liability companies or LLCs by sort of very major donors. So um, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan, famously um, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative they set up is an LLC rather than a traditional philanthropic foundation. And there have been a couple of other big name ones in the last couple of years. Um, the argument in favour of it from these donors is that it's less limited than uh, than a traditional foundation, or let, you know they perceive them as being limited because 
There are restrictions in terms of making commercial investments. There are restrictions and limits in terms of engaging in straightforward political campaigning activity and these sorts of things. And their argument is they want to have you know the, the full range of tools at their disposal um, in order to kind of drive the big scale social change that they're looking to achieve. Um, critics, on the other hand, would say that you know that's all well and good, but actually you know that comes at the cost of things like transparency and accountability because you know uh, many people would say there's not even that much uh, transparency in the foundation world at the moment there's certainly a lot less if you're talking in terms of llc's and actually if it's people at the level of wealth of mark zuckerberg and, and his ilk who are doing this then all those sorts of questions about um democratic legitimacy become very important and if you you know one of the sort of key things is to at least be able to see what it is people are doing with those philanthropic funds and if you can't even do that then it's very difficult to assess you know its legitimacy so you know we should potentially be concerned about this uh, use of llcs um but then the the other way in which you go which i i think is interesting is sort of you know not towards ever more structure but actually going back in in the opposite direction or perhaps coming full circle um, towards the sort of very old-fashioned notions of uh, giving and association, which is less about kind of centralised formal structures and more about direct peer-to-peer relationships or people kind of loosely associating in groups. Um, and what's interesting here is that a lot of this is sort of driven by new capabilities brought about by technology. So as we're, the world is getting sort of ever more sophisticated and technology is allowing us to sort of communicate and coordinate ever more effectively, it may well be bringing a sort of full circle to you know, almost kind of medieval ideas of charity. Um, so we're seeing, you know, on the one hand, the kind of disintermediation of giving. So there's quite a lot of different platforms out there now that... Um, you know, instead of, of allowing you as a donor to select traditional charities or non-profits, instead try to put you directly in touch with projects or community groups or even individuals um, who need resources. Um, and so you see things like the growing use of direct cash transfers um, and international development. So this is the model uh, we talked a bit on the podcast before, I think, uh, Uh, where instead of kind of giving money to a traditional aid institution with all of its kind of infrastructure and overheads and all that sort of stuff, you just give the money via a technology-enabled platform directly to an individual or to a sort of village or community in the developing world and basically allow them to decide for themselves what to do with the money. Um, And there are all sort of interesting assessments out there of uh, how whether or not this is more effective than giving money in a traditional way to to large organisations. Um, there's also, I think, sort of, you know, not so much between the global north and the global south, but just within communities, um, you know, the increasing rise of things like uh, crowdfunding. So, you know, traditionally or initially that was uh, sort of very much around commercial applications and sort of early days of Kickstarter and people raising money to develop products or um, kind of... Uh, over time, things like sort of artistic projects, but actually we're seeing platforms like GoFundMe and others being used not just to raise money for sort of charitable projects, but for specific individual needs. So there's been a huge rise in things like medical crowdfunding in the US and the UK, um, where people who need operations um, and things like that are you know putting their needs on social media. 
uh, and on these crowdfunding platforms and you know asking for donations and help and often they raise the money very quickly um, and I think this is really interesting because it comes back to to something that you see very much kind of woven through the history of, of philanthropy which is the kind of question of how you determine which are the deserving and undeserving cases or how you kind of do philanthropy in a discriminating way which is driven you know all sorts of developments in terms of structure and approach over time and it was a huge thing that the victorians were incredibly bothered about the idea that of indiscriminate giving drove them absolutely mad um, and i guess one question in my mind is if we are moving back to some of these older old-fashioned models of sort of direct person-to-person interaction is there the risk that we reintroduce some of these ideas without really knowing it so actually could we once again start to see people kind of being forced to determine for themselves who were the deserving and undeserving cases when they were approached for kind of crowdfunding for medical treatment and on what basis would they be making that decision so actually the chances are you would be making on the basis of things like what that person looks like how they sound what their writing is like kind of how good they are on social media and you know obviously to my mind those aren't really the right criteria on which to be assessing somebody's need and actually is there an argument that one of the benefits of having sort of formalized centralized structure in that context is that it it kind of removes some of that uh, kind of individual choice and unconscious bias of the donor and makes the decision about where money goes slightly more evidence-based and objective. And I think that's something we will need to think about in coming years. Um, and then the final thing that I that I want to mention is the question of kind of structure when it comes to association, particularly around social movements. So another thing that I think we're seeing already, and I suspect will be more of a trend in coming years, is the, a move away from... Uh, the idea of kind of existing formal structures as the vehicles for driving forward social campaigns or sort of social change movements and instead you know looking to more kind of networked models or kind of loose grassroots association Um, and I'm thinking you know here things like Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement um, in response to Grenfell here in the UK um, the kind of uh, climate strike movement and all those sorts of things um, and I think, uh, you know, there are some obvious benefits to, to taking those approaches. So um, they're, you know, they're often said to be much more agile and flexible. They're potentially kind of scalable or can get to that scale faster. Some people would argue they're more democratic because, you you know, everybody operates on an equal par and nobody is kind of elevated to the status of leadership or there aren't kind of hierarchies there. As a result, they may be more democratic. Um it's possible that they they sort of have more resistance to attack or or failure. Um, this is certainly you know one of the things the theories behind the way the internet was structured was that by having a sort of distributed structure, it would make it there's no central point of attack. Um, and the point actually for the internet was that they were worried about the danger of nuclear strike, and they wanted to have a system of communication that would remain working in the event of a nuclear strike. So if you have a distributed structure, even if quite a number of the nodes get taken out you still have the the structure because it's multiply connected but i digress um but then i think the the interesting question and one that if you ever catch me down a pub or you know just anywhere really i'll probably bore you about for hours is what you know to what extent 
is new technology genuinely overcoming some of the known challenges with these kind of non-hierarchical models that we already know about and that are what sort of led us originally to centralise and introduce more structure? Or are we getting carried away with the possibilities of technology? And actually, what we'll find is all of those same challenges still apply and we've kind of sleepwalking back into them or we're just going to rediscover them. Um, and it, an interesting case in point here is um, a sort of oft-cited paper in the world of uh, digital social movements um, and sort of web stuff um, by Joe Freeman from the 70s um, called The Tyranny of Structurelessness, um, which is a fascinating paper looking specifically at um, questions around the uh, feminist movement in the early uh, 70s, late 60s, early 70s. Um, but it has kind of insights that, that sort of really speak to the modern context and definitely kind of work far beyond the, the specific context in the paper. Um, and some of the points that she made in that paper are things like um, she identified the the idea within the feminist movement of trying to doing things in a, what they call the structureless way. So, you know, not having hierarchies and keeping everything sort of flat and horizontal. Um, and her point, or one of her main points, was there's no such thing as a structuralist group. So she said, contrary to what we would like to believe, there's no such thing as a structuralist group. Any group of people of whatever nature that comes together for any length of time for any purpose will inevitably structure itself in some fashion. The very fact that we're individuals with different talents, predispositions and backgrounds makes this inevitable. Only if we refuse to relate or interact on any basis whatsoever could we approximate structurelessness, and that's not the nature of a human group. So she's saying, you know, it's not even it would sort of it's a false starting point to talk about structurelessness because it doesn't really exist. Um, and actually, the point she goes on to make is that it, the danger is that in talking about things as if they they were structureless, you hide the fact that actually tied up in them are all sorts of elements of structure and power relationships that are not explicit. So she says. The idea of structurelessness becomes a smokescreen for the strong or the lucky to establish unquestioned hegemony over others. This hegemony can be so easily established because the idea of structurelessness does not prevent the formation of informal structures, only formal ones. Thus, structurelessness becomes a way of masking power and is usually most strongly advocated by those who are the most powerful. Um, So this is a really important point, I think, which is that you don't the pretty much all seemingly structureless groups actually do have a structure and the, the danger is that if you pretend they don't actually that structure is just hidden in the background and it allows people um who already have existing power to kind of exert that power even more because there's no way of holding them to account or there aren't the sort of transparency mechanisms that there are if you've got formal sets of rules um and another point that Freeman raises, uh, the, the last one I want to, to mention, which I think is really relevant, is that in um, structuralist groups, yeah, another thing they're often said to be is leaderless. So again, you know, everybody's on a par, so nobody is, is above the other, and there aren't sort of established leaders as such. Um, but again, she sort of says, actually, if you say that your group is leaderless, that's all well and good. But what you've what you've really done is make it possible for somebody else to choose the leaders for you, because as soon as you try to move from talking to action to try and engage with government or the media becomes aware of you or anything like that, they will look to speak to figureheads or leaders of that movement. And if they aren't there, they will choose for themselves who those people are. Um, And this is certainly something that's really relevant at this point in time with the democracy protests that are going on in Hong Kong, 
where previous iterations of that, this has been a problem for them, I think, where the the Chinese government has kind of identified for itself leaders of the movement with whom it is willing to to talk. And actually those, you know, those leaders often aren't particularly representative of the movement as a whole. And also, even if they don't choose to do that, it does it potentially sort of limit the power of a movement if it doesn't have leaders, because it can never really move beyond a certain level of kind of uncoordinated action um, to trying to kind of drive longer term change. Um, And again, I think in the context where technology is making it easier for people to uh, kind of build these sort of networked movements, these, these kinds of questions are going to be hugely important. Um, okay, so that sort of brings us to the the end there, I think. So, yeah, um, hopefully that that all kind of works as a coherent whole. I think the, the basic point is to to say that actually, you know, understanding why the structures that we have in philanthropy, both the sort of pragmatic ones that allow us to give, but also things like the different forms of voluntary association and the structures that we put on top of those to regulate understanding why it is that those have emerged in the way that they do um, and kind of what the the drivers are and and for whom is really important because that sort of raises questions about you know whether when we have new capabilities through technology whether we should still do things in the same way because there's still a reason to do that or whether actually some of the uh, the kind of barriers that existed in the past no longer exist, and we're only doing things in that way because we assume we have to. So I think this is this is going to be a big sort of question for philanthropy in the future. You know, can what what are the things that we can do in a more sort of decentralized or unstructured way? You know, the whole kind of new power idea, and what are the things where actually there is benefit to structure and centralization and formalization? And can we be clear about what those things are? Because then maybe we'll arrive at the right sort of happy medium where, you know, the things that we can do in an unstructured way, we can do and get the benefit of that kind of thing. And then the things where you require formalization and structure, we make sure we've got that in place so that we don't run into all the sort of known challenges. Um, But, you know, striking that bargain will require an awful lot of uh, thought and effort. Um, So, you know, I think it's something we're going to have to work on a lot in coming years. Okay, well, finally, that brings us to a close. So it just remains to say um, I will put links in the show notes to lots of things I've been talking about. Um, If you're interested more generally in thoughts and writing and whatnot on philanthropy, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis if you can bear to hear any more from me. Um, Also check out uh, at Philiteracy if you want um, more sort of musings on specific kind of writing and literature on philanthropy. Uh, if you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, uh, give us a nice review on wherever you get your podcasts, tell all your friends about it, and I will see you next time. Bye!